Hi, everybody. Welcome. We have, I think, just an incredibly useful conversation going today with Sarah Payton. Sarah has been able to work with people on a level that is so unconscious that most of us are never able to unravel the threads that are bound together. And we're going to talk very specifically about that. And it's not only us personally, but it seems to me there's something even larger going on right now. So let's go to Sarah. Sarah, welcome. i I was at Omega Institute, and uh, one of the people in my class came up and said, do you know Sarah Payton's work? And I, I didn't at that time. And they said, oh, you got to know about this woman. I'm so grateful that she introduced me to you and what you do, because I find your work to be an incredible approach to healing our deep inner psyche wounds, our trauma. And right now, I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like the world at large is suffering from some mass trauma together. People are coming unglued. It's crazy out there. What's your observation? Uh, well, I have to agree with you. It's such a beautiful question. You know, no one has exactly framed it in that way. Are we suffering from a mass trauma? And in some ways, I think the answer is yes. And I have several guesses about what our mass trauma is that we're in the face of. And one of them, of course, is the is the climate crisis. I mean, it, it makes human brains sputter and fizz and go into a scarcity mode, and it shifts everybody to the conservative side of the political spectrum, which takes us out of big picture thinking. And, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard anyone put it that way because the thing is, there are so many different views on climate change. I did an interview with someone at Gaia recently um, whose specialty, he's a genius, his, his area is astrophysics. He said, well, first of all, we've got to recognize our entire solar system is going through climate global warming, not just climate change, but global warming. This is a phenomena in the solar system that's going to go on for a long period of time. And I thought, wait a minute. And he explained exactly how that works and why we're in a global warming in terms of our solar system anyway. Um, and I thought, geez, you know, this is cosmic right down to issues that have to do with pollution and personal choices and everything in between. And it's just scaring the bejesus out of everybody. Yes. And there was a beautiful piece of research that was done last year where they took folks who were conservative politically and folks who were liberal politically. They asked them social questions like, what should we do about such and such? And how should we use money? And the liberal people responded as you would expect, and the conservative people responded as you would expect. Then they took the conservative people and they said to them, now imagine that you are in a world of abundance. And then when they answered the questions again, they answered like the liberal people. This is what wow. scarcity and fear do to our brains. So essentially, and you're, you're right on, it has to be just by nature of our personalities, our human dispositions, that conservatism would stem from fear. Yes, and that we have these two beautiful hemispheres, which each see the world in their own way. This is the work of Ian McGilchrist, who I love very much. Who, yes. His Divided Brain, I think, is on YouTube. He has a very thick book, but you can watch the 12-minute YouTube video instead. But, but what he says is we look through the, the lens of our left hemisphere, we look through the lens of our right hemisphere, we see the world in very different ways. So that scarcity, boom, pushes us over into seeing the world through the scarcity lens. 
I just have to say thank you. If we ended the conversation here, you've done a world of good already because you've helped me and everyone understand why this great divide, the great divide uh, that's happening around the world and in all of the Western world and, and beyond uh, has to do with this fear of scarcity, this fear that the way of life we've all known is ending. Uh, on a variety of levels. So it is very much fear-based. And um, thank you for explaining that so elegantly and for sharing that study with us. I really appreciate it. I want to go into you now because we're going to get into kind of the personal mechanics of it. You do something called interpersonal neurobiology is a field that you your work really stems from. Most people have never heard of that. Right, right. But so, we all, we've all heard of nonviolent communication, which you've also invested time in. Yeah. But let's talk about interpersonal neurobiology and what sure. that means. Sure. People have started calling, they call it interpersonal neurobiology, and then there's a new name for it since the book came out, which where a lot of people are calling it relational neuroscience. So what do our brains do in relationship with each other? How do, does your brain and my brain, how do our brains begin to resonate together in the experience of connecting? We're both talking about something we're passionate about, passionately interested in. If we were, if we were hooked up to machinery, it would show us that for when you're talking, my brain is finishing your sentences before you do, and yours is doing the same thing. That when we're on the same sort of brain wave and uh, different activity in different parts of the brain, that we're synchronizing in ways that we never even knew. We felt it, I think, intuitively, but we didn't know before. That makes total sense. Now, might that also make sense when we're looking at the big picture and we're talking about this this division culturally that's happening across the world between uh, liberalism and conservatism? And might it be that we're really only reinforcing our wiring and points of view because we only want to hear those messages that are soothing to our brains and we're seeing that more and more? Yeah, soothing, but soothing is a very interesting word for the human brain because we have a little guy, a little, a little hamster wheel inside of our brains called the anterior cingulate cortex that's always trying to measure what's being said against what we feel is true. So soothing is not necessarily putting us into a place of peace. Soothing in this case, when we're talking about political questions and whether we want to actually listen to the other side, is like, does my anterior cingulate begin to scream when I'm listening to the other side? Right. Am I getting these, you know, sort of like in the old days we played pinball. And if you you jammed the pinball machine too hard, it would go tilt 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 and you yeah. lose your, you lose your marbles and the same thing happens for our brains oh yeah we're losing our yeah, marbles we <laughs> lose our marbles when like if you know if i'm liberal and i'm asking myself to look at fox news then i'm going to be like oh my god and if i'm conservative and i'm asking myself to look at um democracy now then i'm going to go oh this is terrible you know and it's our interior cingulates that are screaming at us so the soothing is not in this case about peace it's about trying to get something that's concordant with our worldview right and this leads us to the title of your book your resonant self so it's trying to find some sort of resonance with itself and you say that's what this work is about is our brain trying to find resonance with itself again after a lifetime of trauma and they can be many traumas they can be a mild insult to something really deep a really deep wound and 
I, I loved what you had to say. I listened to a couple of your other interviews on this part of your work. And one of the things that came up was the notion of rage and the, okay, first of all, the amygdala yep. and these various pathways. Okay. And I wanted to know what each one of them are, what each one of these emotions that have mm-hmm. their own kind of pathway are. The notion, the, the amygdala is there are two of them on the right and left hemisphere and they're each responsible for different sets of emotions and what happens and I'm just going to let you take it away because I've kind of set it up you know simply what happens when these wires get crossed and we end up in a deeply hardwired emotional response to something go wherever you want yeah then we're in that place of reactivity so we've got our seeking so this you said you'd like to know what the circuits are yeah the circuits are we have a seeking circuit that that is basically the entire left hemisphere. It's our dopamine-fueled get things done, take care of business, get the to-do list items checked off, what's next that I have to do, did I do my laundry, did I, did I finish my taxes, did I, you know, all of those things that we have to do to keep our lives rolling. And then we've got uh, the play circuit, which is the circuit that's about spontaneous delight. And it's the most vulnerable of all the circuits. It's the one we lose first. As soon as we're pushed into scarcity, we lose our capacity to play. And play is sort of a magical thing that makes everything else function well. We have an entire system within us. Many people don't know this because it's such new research. You know how there's cannabis in the real world. Inside of our body, we have endocannabinoid receptors, endogenous cannabinoid receptors in almost every tissue of our body. And what makes our body well-balanced and in good homeostasis is the experience of warmth and play. So that takes us to the third circuit. We've got seeking play. Now we have the care circuit, which is the circuit that comes alive when we feel warmly toward one another. So when we feel warmly toward one another, when we feel a warm care for the earth, when we feel a warm care for other species, that's our warmth circuit. That's our care circuit. One, two, three. Then we've got our rage circuit, the circuit that uh, is meant to to get us uh, give us a lot of life energy for protection and for um, to be able to take care of the vulnerable. If we have a sense of being vulnerable, it's trying to take care of us. If we're protecting other people, it's trying to take care of other people. Then we've got the fear circuit, which is the circuit that, um, that really uh, gets us out of dangerous situations. It gives us the energy to run away. And then we've got our, sexuality circuit which is an entirely different different pathway you can imagine these circuits as bus lines going through the brain going through the brain stem going through the the spinal column not the spinal column but the vagus nerve just we're we're we've got these hookups these emotional hookups that were tra- lines that were traveling along so the sexuality circuit is an entirely different set of brain tissue than the seeking circuit so that here we got six. The other two are we've got the disgust circuit, which is so interesting. We could spend the next hour talking about the disgust circuit. It comes very much alive in the politics that we're talking about, because our leaders tend to try to mobilize our disgust circuit 
to make us fall into line with whatever their particular ideas are about what should be happening. So using words like vermin or infestation when we're talking about immigrants, for example, that's supposed to make horrible. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's supposed to make our disgust circuit kick off and then make us stop thinking. Yeah, so we need to take care whenever we hear our our leaders and our media using these kinds of words because those words are meant to disable our lovely human prefrontal cortex that has the capacity for long-term consideration. Interesting. Okay, we have one more. And we have one more, and my brain is just fritzing out. I wonder what it is. Well, one of them, okay, so there was an abandonment. That's it. You aloneness. remembered it. That's I remembered that. Alarmed aloneness. Yes. Panic grief, the circuit that kicks in for little mammals when they lose their mothers. Yeah. And it comes alive for us when we lose our partners to divorce or death or heartbreak or, or children. Yeah. You know, I heard you talk about, okay, talking about that one. So you were, in, you were in one conversation where you were talking about the work of, I believe, Beatrice Beebe. Oh, my God. Who I know you have a lot of respect for, and her work sounds amazing, where she talks about what happens to the brain development and the relationship between an infant and its mother. And you had something really interesting to say about that, about what happens up to the age of four months and then after that. Yeah, by the age of four months, we have internalized what were our mother's easy facial re- expression responses to us. So, so up to four months, we have all of our own expression as yeah, an Yeah, we're born, yeah, as a, as a newborn infant, we come out with, with the complete continuum of each facial expression uh, along many of these very circuits that we've just been talking about. So we can do a little bit of fear. We can do a lot of fear. We can do a little bit of sadness. We can do a lot of sadness. And so there's this entire continuum of emotional expression. that Spontaneous delight, play, all of that. Shows up on our faces. Mm -hmm. But for humans, it's very hard for us to be outside what other humans can can do with us. So if you've ever been the only one crying in a room and you remember that you maybe felt a lot of shame, that's an example. Or if you all of a sudden broke, you're riding on a bus and all of, you're reading, all of a sudden you break out in a shout of laughter and everybody stares at you. You know, you're completely not in congruence with the rest of the humans that are around you. And these moments can be intensely shameful. And this is what happens to little babies is when they're outside what their mother can easily reflect, it's almost like they get electric shocks of cortisol that stop them from going outside the facial expression of vocabulary that their mother has. So whatever the limitation is in terms of their own trauma and development in the mother is going to, it sounds like almost automatically be passed. Now we hear this, we hear that, you know, there's ancestral shame and there are ancestral patterns that are passed down through the baby, but this is very specific neurological response to these things. If the mother has had some trauma in a certain area, in fact, let's talk about rage. If the mother has been told that to be angry is very unsafe, then what happens to the baby, for example? Then the baby makes a little angry face, Mm. And the mother's not able even to see it, not able to respond to it. Her face doesn't respond to it. Her voice doesn't respond to it. She's not able to say, 
of course you're angry. She's only able to like just gloss it over or turn away or do something else. And the baby learns very quickly on an internal level, not even verbally. This is way before words that we're coming with this limitation of our facial expression vocabulary. Way before words, the baby learns, oh, no, I shouldn't be angry. And this, you know, we'll see in generations and generations in family cultures that are passed down until somebody gets to a point where they get a really great therapist who's like, yes, your rage matters. (laughs) (laughs) Or they read my book or they. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because you do talk about this in your resonant cell, uh, your new book. Uh, Let's talk about rage a little bit more because rage is often, rage and fear both are often circuits that get crossed over with other circuits that you would think, well, that's unfortunate. You had something really good going. It intersected with this through some trauma and boom. And please explain the rest of it to us. So let's say, yeah, it's so interesting. Let's say you live in a home where the, the, your dad is under a lot of stress, maybe had a traumatic childhood himself isn't okay with laughter, isn't okay that the laughter makes his rage circuit go. He's got a wiring between his rage circuit and the experience of other people being in their play circuits. There's an automatic rage response that then for the little ones means that their play circuit gets wired with their fear circuit. And so every, every time that they move into a little bit of delight, then they have a crashing neurobiological hit that says, this is going to be really scary. Somebody's going to get hurt. We should not laugh. We should not play. And we can carry this, of course, for decades, as you mentioned in the very beginning when you introduced me, without even knowing that we're carrying these deep kind of contracts that we live within. Yeah, I mean... I, when we, when I was watching one of your interviews with Seuss, my husband, we were I, normally. I'm not particularly prone to self-reflection. Okay, I'm just, I'm just not. I've never been to therapy or anything. It's like, it seems okay to me. <laughs> I was listening to you. I thought, wow, yeah, oh boy, sure, see where that got wired in there, because you explain it in a way that is, um, that is approachable to our rational mind, and at the same time is very warm, embracing, and, and allows for kind of not just self-acceptance, not forgiveness, self-acceptance on these traumas that we've experienced. And this, let's talk about the, the place. You talk about the place for rage and anger in life in that it's actually part of a life force, that there is indignant, um, righteous indignation and anger, for example. And so many of us, especially in the spiritual community, it's like, no, No, we want to be bliss bunnies. We want to push all the anger away. No, I'm not angry about that. And then, of course, later on, something starts grinding in your stomach and you blow up at a stranger. So let's talk about the proper place that you have seen of rage in the human uh, life force energy experience. Yes, here's the question. Do we get to say stop? Do we get to say that? Is that something that's like a... Because this is the movement of rage it's like it's here it's like yes no and 
And so we can tell, you can probably tell just by watching me, all of the watchers, if you have a horror reaction to me doing that, you've probably received some messages that rage is not going to help you be safe and belong in your circle. So how do we begin to step into, how do we reclaim the power and the beauty of our capacity to take strong action to protect ourselves and others. And one of the things that seems to be really important as I travel around the world and teach this is for people to realize that they all, that we all have a rage circuit, that it's not some mistake. (laughs) There's not something wrong with us that we get angry. It's supposed to be here. It's supposed to help us. You say it has to do with self-protection and advocacy. So, yeah. yes, talk about that a little bit more because most people don't equate rage and anger to those two things. Right, right. Well, as we become grown-up people who are no longer infants, then we start to be able to use our words. You may have remember your grade school teacher saying to you, use your words. Um, but it really is a very powerful thing to begin to use our words. There are circuits within our body of emotion that are coming up. And when we name the emotion that we're experiencing, then the whole body relaxes. It's like there's a completion that needs to happen between the information that's coming up from the body and going to the amygdala. You mentioned the amygdala a little bit ago. It's a little organ deep inside the brain where the emotions come through in different tracks on these different bus lines of the circuits. And so for tra- if, if something bad is happening, if a little kid is being hurt and we want to take action to protect the little kid, We need our no. We need this life energy that comes up and says, hey, this is not the right thing to be happening. And and as we become acquainted with our own circuits, they don't take us out of our own window of tolerance. This means that we don't lose our cool. We don't lose our head. We don't lose our capacity for rational thinking. Instead, we're like, oh, I feel the anger. Some action needs to be taken. What is the best ang- What is the best action for me to take now? And then, and, and then we have so much more access to our life energy. Because one of the other things, you know, you said that we like to be bliss bunnies. But one of the other things we really like is we like to have full access to all of our energy. And we like to have it all flowing and to know it's all there. It's almost like if we refuse our own anger, we're refusing one of the hues of our rainbow of life energy. It's like we're turning the crank and getting that faucet turned off. And then we've only got purple and green and yellow and there's no red in our rainbow. Well, what happens when we perpetually suppress rage? Uh, Gabor Mate, whose work is stunning, believes that when we perpetually suppress rage, we become ill. That, that closing off that life energy 
makes us vulnerable to disease, that it makes us vulnerable in so many ways to different kinds of big diseases, you know, big diagnoses, cancer and heart disease, pulmonary disease and so on, that the more that we have access to our no, and he has a beautiful book called When the Body Says No, um, that writes exactly about this phenomenon that we that we need to to be able to it's like it's like knowing that we exist and and the, the rage circuit lets us know yes we exist these are our boundaries this is what we're willing to accept this is what we're not willing to accept Thank you for that. I think everybody everybody will relate to that. And now let's look at the notion of abandonment, which oftentimes it's said that the single greatest collective fear of individuals is the fear of abandonment. Let's yeah. talk about that and what happens when it crosses over with some of the other some of the other circuits. Well, abandonment is. Um is that that grief panic circuit. It's the circuit that the little animals experience when their mothers are taken away from them, that we experience when someone we love dies, that uh, mothers will experience when their children go off to kindergarten or go off to college or fathers will experience in these same situations. So we, we all kind of know what this is. But what's so interesting is that we have a nervous system state of alarm that I call alarmed aloneness, that is not fight or flight. So in our language, we ellipse the alarmed aloneness. We say, oh, our nervous system, it does fight, flight, or freeze. It does fight is anger, flight is fear, and then the third thing is just freezing because we're helpless. And if we never name that we also have an alarm state, as human social beings, when we lose one another, when we lose contact with one another, when we lose resonance with one another, when we lose the physical presence of one another, if we never name that we have a state of alarmed aloneness, then this circuit that I was talking about earlier, where the body connects with the brain and everything relaxes, the relaxation never comes. Some people walk around with anxiety. For decades, anxiety, one of the flavors of anxiety is alarmed aloneness. And so if we just say, oh, this is anxiousness, this is anxiousness, and we're never able to say to ourselves, Sarah, would you like a little acknowledgement that you are, that you've been lonely for many, many years? And then you, you notice what happens with your body when you actually name this, and there's like a stillness that will often come for people. When I'm out traveling and teaching, this is what people often tell me is the most important thing that I have given them is the capacity to name their alarmed aloneness. That's, that's really interesting because in, in the world now and over the last generation, um, before you had a lot of songs, I mean, just, just your standard kind of pop songs spoke about broken hearts and loneliness. And now there's like a, a really much more of a reactionary, heavy defiance, I don't need anyone kind of thing going on, like this backlash to the extent that women, for example, I know a lot of women who are single, beautiful, wonderful women who are single, 
who would never admit that they're lonely unless they're just breaking down in a really weird moment. It's not okay to say one feels alone or lonely um, in this world to a large extent. What happened there and what does that do to us? Because that certainly has to cross over with either grief or rage or fear or something. Well, this is this actually came to mind to me for me at the very beginning of our conversation when you said, I wonder if we have lived through a collective trauma. And I do think that there is a collective trauma of a kind of culture of um, of individuality. Yes. Where we don't even realize that we're made for a relationship. Yes. We, we, we minimize it in so many ways. I've just mentioned one way that we minimize it by just saying fight, flight, and freeze instead of fight, flight, alarmed, aloneness, and freeze. And we, you know, we have all these Hollywood movies of the, the lone hero saving the day and doing it all and, you know, making it through and surviving and, and, uh, and making the right decisions at the right time and having luck. And I mean, that's our, that's our hero, whether we're men or women, that's, that's our hero. Um, I just want to say, or fluid gendered. That's our hero is this, is this one lone hero instead of us seeing ourselves within this beautiful web of interconnection. And, um, and to, to just say, I always like to say that we have these little heat sensors in our skin that aren't made to, re- to, to, to notice burning, that aren't made to notice cold, but are made to notice warmth, made to notice other people's body heat close to us. So there's something so soothing for human bodies. We're made for community. We're made for sweet, uh, joined, connected community. And we change entirely when we experience it. So, so this too, I think, is one of the collective traumas that is a part of this. Um, it's, of- it's almost like a shame around admitting the vulnerability yeah. that we need one another. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting about that is that the shame is another level of this very same circuit. So we'll have the abandonment and then we'll kind of block it because we don't want anybody to know. And then if we notice it at all, then we'll have shame. But the shame's running on the same circuit and then we'll block that shame and there'll be more. I mean, we'll just have like archaeological digs of alarmed aloneness in our sweet human bodies. They just so need to be. And it does seem almost epidemic, especially in cultures that are more economically advantaged, where everybody can afford to have their own apartment, their own home, their own condominium, um, their own privacy. But there seems to have been such a price for the privacy, where Mm -hmm. in lower socioeconomic conditions, you're forced to live with family, extended family, or maybe have multiple roommates and such. Mm -hmm. This makes me think about first class. I accidentally got myself into first class <laughs> sometime, like three or four trips ago. And I was like sitting there in my little box and there was nobody anywhere around and I couldn't feel any body heat. And then I was like, I got back into economy and I was like, 
oh, here are the people. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now, speaking of body heat, now this is going to get a little more intense. So just I just want to you know, have up here because it's something I've wondered about. And um, many years ago when my son was a teenager, I remember saying to him, honey, I just wish for you, as we were talking about girls, you know, and I said, I wish for you that your first intimate experience with a girl is going to be someone you really care for and that you have really sweet feelings for. Mm -hmm. I, I wish that for you. Um, and the reason I said that is because of having noticed what's happened, what happens with boys who end up in a situation where they get a girl drunk, take advantage of her, maybe multiple people have sex with this girl or whatnot. There is some kind of wiring that happens there that seems to be super detrimental in the future. What's getting wired there where you actually have even violence or poor behavior wired into the stimulation of sexuality on the male side, but also on the female side? What happens there? Well, one of the things that we're beginning to touch here is a very interesting part of being human, which is we talked about the seeking circuit. The seeking circuit also includes predatory aggression. So our seeking circuits can, 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 are the circuits that we would originally use for hunting. So like there's this particular mindset, mindset of hunting that is a part of so much of, de of detrimental human experience. So bullying, for example. When little kids are bullying other little kids, they're not angry at the little kid that they're bullying. It's not the anger circuit. It's this shift into predatory aggression in the seeking circuit. So cruelty, um, uh, aggression, um, hostility, contempt, um, bullying, uh, uh, verbal abuse, and also sexual violence are all part of predatory aggression. And of course, when you have the sexuality circuit and the seeking circuit linked together in this way, then you, get, you can get some of this wiring that's really intensely kind of terrifying in many ways that we, that we as humans have this capacity to shift into a place where other people don't really exist for us. And what's so interesting about this is when we have the sexuality circuit and the seeking circuit linked together, neither of them on their own are very good at seeing that other people really exist. Interesting. Other people become targets rather than remaining human. So that's a, a whole a whole swath of our human experience that's really important and interesting and hard. Yeah, and it's interesting too when you look at it uh, socially in that you have people in positions of power. And I'm not speaking about our current situation. I'm speaking about throughout history. Oh, sorry, you have yeah. people, And mostly it's men who are, have been in positions of power, unless you have your odd queen here and there. And um, so in this power with the ability to essentially order the world the way you want and have access to anything you want, it seems that those wires get crossed all the time with sexuality and people do become objects. And also you look at the feminine side, which is how to gain security through your own sexual appeal and seeking your own power base through men like this. 
that's a really kind of screwed up dynamic. Yeah, it is. And I also don't want to completely wipe out the possibility that men, that women have their own predatory aggression. Yeah. It can do. also be linked with sexuality. It's yeah. much more common in our world to see it with men, but just don't want to, I don't yeah. want to completely take away our own capacity for women-centered violence. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, it happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then also this, this sense of seeking for safety, you know, more than, because if your man has power, then you get to be safe, right? And it's a, you know, it's a strange way of being safe. And the more power that we have as a couple or as individuals, the less access we have to the circuits that provide us with the information that other people exist. It's very interesting. Study after study, even with monopoly, showing that, that when people win at monopoly, they become increasingly less empathetic with their... <laughs> <laughs> with their co-players. Really? Yeah, if, yeah. If, they're, if they're persistently winning? Yeah, yeah. If they rig the game a little bit so that the person is consistently winning, yeah. then they gradually lose more and more empathy, more and more connects, just with monopoly money. This is a human phenomenon. <laughs> that's, fa- that is, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Okay, that we could go on with. I could we could go much deeper into discuss. There are all of these areas we could go in and look at all of the variables of these cross circuits, and each one of us has them. And each one of us probably, when we get triggered in a conversation, because part of what you talk about also is what happens when we converse with each other, when we go into or go out of resonance, where, where our being is in it, where, like you say, in agreement, our words are something that we res- the other resonates with, or when we go out and the trauma that can happen and the arguments that can erupt and such by going out of resonance. So th- you you talk about that in your book, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and again, again, we're just we're playing along this continuum of to what degree do we have access to the part of the brain that can see other people as existing and can see the world in a big picture way. Yes, and. and I want to bring trauma back into this piece because if we have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere, amygdala's hidden down in there in each of them, then what happens is that the more trauma we have in the right hemispheres where we store trauma, the less we're able to really be functional in the right hemisphere. So the more trauma a person has, the less access they have to seeing others as human and the less access they have to um, uh, to their own sense of autobiography and to the big picture of what's happening in the world. So the more trauma is present, the more people are forced into the left hemisphere, which is the home of seeking, but as we've mentioned, is also the home of predatory aggression. So there's nothing to balance our tendency towards predatory aggression out. So again, when you said, are we in the presence of a collective trauma that's really impacting the human race? The answer is so big a yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we all feel it. We're seeing evidence of it all the time. People who normally, you know, can say, hey, I can see their point of view, can't see each other's point of view anymore. That it's almost, I've, I've had a recent incident that showed that and I was absolutely shocked at the degree of, 
um, kind of unkindness and judgment and things that enter into just having different points of view right now. Um, so, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Let's go into the part of the conversation about how we start untangling these circuits and oh, begin the healing process. Yeah, yeah. So the healing process is is something, it's such a beautiful thing about human brains. They love to be disentangled. So as soon as, as somebody comes with a facial expression, a gesture, words that say, you make sense, yes, you make sense, then we, we begin to see our brains kind of unspooling and disentangling, and we begin to be able to make meaning in deep ways. I mean, there may be listeners on this, this very show who had the experience of an aha when I named Alarmed Aloneness, and when I said, do you need acknowledgement that you've been lonely for years? Even that little bit begins to disentangle the circuits. It's, it lets the grief panic circuit know that it exists, that it's valuable, that it belongs, that its experience belongs. And as we, as we bring acknowledgement to our emotional experience, we can feel the brain changing. It's such a beautiful sensation, this experience of fluidity. I go, this is what I do. I travel around and I teach about trauma and I teach about how we heal it. And we do a little bit of work with somebody in the, in these large auditoriums and in smaller classrooms. And, and the person will say, Oh, I remember when we did uh, a person had been, um, had been doing some sort of little art project and their teacher was contemptuous. And we 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 went back through time and space, and we acknowledged for this is just a little trauma, right? We acknowledged for this little girl. Oh, I wonder if in this moment you were ashamed and lonely, and if you were really sad, and if maybe a little angry too, and if you need some acknowledgement for the complexity of your experience. And the woman said, "Oh my God, I'm realizing." that I've never really let my artistic side come out. It's like in that moment, I took my artistic capacity and I folded it within me so that it would never be harmed again. And I've never let it come out since then. And this is the human brain untangling. We can, we can hear it in people's words when they go, oh my God, I just realized. And so uh, it's so simple. Uh, it's it's got a complexity because whenever we open our mouths, we get pulled into the left hemisphere, and fix it language doesn't change anybody's brain. If I say and that's what we tend to do when yeah. we go to a counselor or a therapist, right? It's, you call it narrative or talk. We usually call it talk therapy, right? Yeah. And people wonder why they go year after year and it doesn't seem to help. Right, right. It it will only help. If whatever kind of therapist we have, might be a talk therapist, might be a body worker, might be a Reiki practitioner, if that person is with us and we have a sense of them being with us 
And we're like, yes, I make sense. Oh, that makes sense. And they're not telling us, you should think about this differently. If you just look through this lens, then you'll be okay. If you just connect with God, you won't have to think about this anymore. None of that, none of the fixing. But just that simple presence is what makes humans heal. I think that's so true. Um, I have said before, making a comment on the times, that everybody's talking, but no, nobody's listening. It's kind of like a mass neurosis going on because it's like people are trying to validate, this is me. That's the only way we can feel ourselves by people talking about themselves and their own experience and not really listening, really hearing what the other person has to say. So this is going on, I think, in mass. I think it's it's... It's a condition of the times. And so this might be to this estrangement, not only with ourselves, but each other and feeling so lonely. It's so true because, you know, as trauma has its effect and takes our right hemisphere offline, and as we're pushed into this left hemisphere, also by our fear, by our scarcity, this is the I, I, I place. I, 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 <laughs> and, and there's never a you in the conversation. Yes. This is when we get most bored is yes. when somebody <laughs> goes into their, their I, I, I place and they never come around to you or we. And so, uh, yeah. And so they're just so needing to be heard, but they're not, they're not in a place where they can actually take in even that they are being heard often. Because that's this part of our brain needs to be online for that too. It's our receiving. Yes. Yeah. And you say um, that we we have to do this with one another. We're wired to do this with one another, to live with one another, to interact with one another. So why don't you maybe tell us a little exercise that we can personally take on while we're with others that can begin helping them and ourselves? What are some simple things we can do besides, you know, really listening um, to one another? One of my favorite exercises is to make sure that I have I and you in every sentence. I love it. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because then that prevents me from going into I, 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 or at least I start to notice when I've been in the I, I, I area and I can go, oh, I wonder how I could get a you in, you know, might I be able to say, and how is it for you to hear this? <laughs> what happens when we were, use the word we? We doesn't, uh, we creates a unity that doesn't, that 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 we can co-opt for the I I I. So I see. Yeah. So it's very important to do the I and the you. Yes, I hear. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, your book. It tell us a little bit about how your book is structured, so we understand this, because people will want to be looking for it, and they'll want to be looking for you. Except. Oh. You're a popular woman. You're booked out forever, what, to 2021 or something. So there must be some other people doing what you do, but you teach a lot of workshops. So let's talk a little bit about what you do, what you offer, and where people can find this kind of work um, oh. on a private level. Yes. So for the private for the private work, the best thing is to go to my website. We mentioned yourresonantself.com, which is where you get the guided meditations. There, the book is structured as a very warm and cozy 
journey through the traumatized brain so that we get to hold each of the after effects and consequences of trauma with self-understanding and self-compassion. It's meant, it was written, I actually wrote it during the period while my son was dying of trauma. I have an, I had an older son who uh, was adopted and he had had such terrible trauma when he was a baby and we weren't able to figure out how to resolve that. And we lost him to alcoholism when he was 33 and it was the five years that he was struggling and we were struggling and I was trying to find a way. I was finding ways to help other people, but I wasn't able to find any way to help him, but really it's a dedication to his life. But it's a, it's like, how do we make our brain a nice place to live? So that when we wake up in the morning, we go, Oh, it's Sarah. Welcome to the world, Sarah. I mean, this is a this is a very radical movement for me coming from where I came from with my own personal trauma to wake up into my own warmth. But yeah. this is what the book teaches because just like we all have a rage circuit, we all have a care circuit. And we just need to wake it up and let it learn how to bring its warmth to us, which is a very unusual thing in this world. Yes. Yeah, so that's how the book is structured. It's a warm guided tour through the traumatized, through healing the traumatized brain. Coming into resonance with self. Now yeah. let's talk about your public work, you know, and your then, workshops. Yeah, the, the public work, the workshops, you can find on the Empathy Brain website. That has all the workshops. If you want to hear webinars, uh, every month I take a subject I don't know enough about and I do a deep dive into it and talk about the implications for resonance and connection and attachment and healing trauma. So though that's something that's always available to come be with me in person, you just, I travel and teach all over North America, all over Europe. So you can find me somewhere in the world and come <laughs> hang out with me. And then, um, have you trained other people to do this? And, work? Yeah. On the empathy brain website, there's one-on-one -on -one sessions with a lot of different practitioners who also do this work. So you can work with unconscious contracts and time travel empathy and have some help in making your traumatized brain a sweet place to live. I love it. Sarah, any final thoughts before we go? Because this is a lot for people to chew on and I hope um, we follow up. A lot of us follow up with it. Um, normally I always read the book before I interview someone, but it didn't arrive in time and I'm not, I'm not a big Kindle fan. So I've just listened to enough, but I haven't had the pleasure of reading the book myself so I'm really looking forward to it any final thoughts on this that we need to take away today just to say that the the guided meditations are free downloads on the website and they and they're a little brief it's like if you never even got the book well you just got the and you can get them on insight timer too they're just a very very sweet tour again through how do we heal the traumatized brain so i think what i want people to know more than anything else is even if your brain is very mean to you it has it has good reasons for it not because you are bad and stupid but because you have lived through trauma and so it doesn't mean that your brain is telling you the truth it just means that you've lived through some very difficult things and just to begin to know this, I think, is it ha has a kind of a resonant sweetness to it, the acknowledgement mm -hmm. of how we are, we, how we can be so cruel to ourselves, and that it makes sense, but not because we're bad or wrong. 
No. Yeah. Beautifully yeah. said. Beautifully said. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to be oh, with us. Such also, a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do the work you've done and also write this book. I look forward to reading it very much. So again, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Again, you can go to Sarah's website, Your Resonant Self, to look at her book. And the other website, Empathy Brain. Is it Empathy Brain? Yes. Empathy, Empathy Brain, one word, yeah. Empathybrain.com and uh, check out her other work and her workshops and so forth. Again, the chance for us to begin treating ourselves with a little more kindness and a little more warmth, which I think every one of us can use. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.